Sometimes they don't know where to start. It's really a library under one cover, 66 books, 1,189 chapters, 31,102 verses, 773,746 words. There's a lot of material in this one book. So what you have to do first is the same thing that we do when we start to put together a puzzle. We will find the straight edge pieces and put those together. Then you have a frame of reference, and it's easier to find the position of a sing- another piece of the puzzle if you can see the, the uh, borders of it, and you can find the colors to match. The same thing is true of the Bible. You know, a lot of people just open up the Bible randomly and begin to read, and there could be some benefit in that, but that's going to make it very confusing if you don't know what part of the Bible you're reading, you don't know what the Bible's really about. You don't understand the different laws that are contained within the Bible. So today we're just going to look at the airplane view of the Bible. We're going to look down at the big picture. And if you wanted to outline, if you wanted to remember um, the big picture of the Bible, you need to just remember three things to start with. There is one theme to the Bible, and it really doesn't matter where you're reading in the Bible. We're always reading about the salvation of man through Christ, to God's glory. Wherever you're reading Exodus or Ephesians, uh, you may be reading Joshua or John, but that's what the Bible's about. It's not a book about mathematics. It's not a book about geography. It's not a book about psychology. It touches on those subjects, and it's always correct when it does. But that's not the purpose of the Bible. The Bible is a book about salvation. Salvation of man through Jesus to God's glory all the way from the first chapter to the last. The number two in one, two, three represents the two parts of the Bible, the two divisions of the Bible. That's the reason I ask you to turn to Matthew 1. Turn back one page from there in your Bible, and you should have a page that looks something like this one. It says the New Testament or the last will and testament of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Some people have called that the most misunderstood page of the Bible because there is a page between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Those are the two divisions of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. Now, I know uh, many people are using their phones or tablets as a Bible now, and that's fine, but if you have your Bible, I'm going to ask you to participate with me um, by holding your Bible in a certain way as we talk about it for a few minutes And the reason for that is because the more of our senses we involve in the learning experience, the longer we remember it. So you're listening, you can see the speaker, but you can also uh, interact with your Bible. So hold the two parts of the Bible in your hand, Old Testament in one hand, New Testament in the other hand. Let me tell you what you're holding in each hand. So you have in your Old Testament hand 929 chapters. That's about three out of four chapters of the Bible are in the Old Testament. In your other hand, the New Testament hand, you have 260 chapters. 
I better stop here because this is about the point where some people give up. They say, all these numbers, I'm lost. You know, two kinds of people in every audience. Those people who love the details. They want the numbers. They want all the, the little things. Other people are like, just cut to the chase and tell me the point of it. I don't, I'm not going to remember all that. So either one you are, you'll get something out of the lesson. But don't become frustrated if you're one or the other. Uh, we're going to have a lot of numbers. We've had some numbers at the beginning. But we're going to get down to the more practical things as the lesson progresses. But it is important to understand the numbers of the Bible because they tell us something about it. And uh, if, you, if you're jotting these things down, then uh, you, you'll be able to remember them better. Or if you want me to email this material to you after uh, today, if you'll give me an email address, I'll send it to you. Or you can listen to this again, and a lot of people do, and they'll you know, fill in the gaps later if you can't get all of it as we go through it. But I do hope that you'll remember the three things that we're emphasizing. The one thing to the Bible, the two parts of the Bible, and we'll talk about number three in a moment. But now we're looking at, a, at the details of, of each testament, 929 chapters, 260 chapters. There are 23,145 verses in the Old Testament, 7,957 verses in the New Testament. So you have a lot more material in the Old Testament, but the more, the more important material is in the New Testament, because that's the part of the Bible that we live under today, and that's the part of the Bible that Jesus came to the earth to reveal to man so that we could get from earth to heaven. So you have these two sections. Then there are three dispensations. So we have one theme, two divisions, and three dispensations of Bible history. Now, dispensation is probably not a word that you've used over breakfast already today. It's not a familiar word in, in conversation. But all it means is a period of time during which a law is in force. There are three Bible dispensations because God has given three different laws over time. And here are the three Bible dispensations. There's the patriarchal dispensation, the Mosaic dispensation, the Christian dispensation. The Mosaic dispensation in the middle is the first written law because the patriarchal dispensation God spoke directly to the heads of families, the patriarchs, who in turn gave their families and their tribes the will of God. It was, was it written? It was oral. But then God revealed the Ten Commandments to Moses in written form, written with the finger of God, Exodus 18.36. And He took that down from the mountain. That became the basis of the written law, the law of Moses. And that was added to by Moses, by the other... Old Testament writers, probably about 38 Old Testament writers, who contributed over a period of about 1,500 years to make up what we have in the Old Testament. So that's the written law. And of course, we have a written law in the New Testament revealed to the eight New Testament writers, four prophets and four apostles. Um, <clears throat> now, a little bit more participation, and then we will go more to a more traditional approach. If you will, hold in one hand the books of Exodus through Malachi, and Genesis in the other hand. So, 38 books in one hand, and one book in the other hand. Now, when you combine those to the whole Old Testament, then you're holding 4,000 years of history. 4,000, we're calling this 4,000 years 
uh, in one Sunday, because that's what we're looking at, the, the period of Bible history from start to finish. So you have 4,000 years altogether, but when you take Genesis out of it, which hand holds the, mo- the most years? You have Genesis in one hand, you have Exodus from Malachi on the other hand, which hand has the most years? Well, you might say, well, there's 38 books in one hand, I'm going to go with, go with that one, but as far as years are concerned, you have more, book, more years in the first book of the Bible than you have in the rest of the Bible combined, including the New Testament. So you have in Exodus through Malachi, 1,500 years, that's from Moses all the way down to Christ, but in your other hand, the patriarchal dispensation, which is covered in the book of Genesis, you have 2,500 years. 2,500 years. Now, <clears throat> one more time, and then we will be finished with uh, this exercise. But hold in one hand Genesis 1 through 11, and the other hand Genesis 12 through 50. Those are the two divisions of the book of Genesis. It's not evenly divided. But that is, that, those, those two sections are the two sections of Genesis. 1 through 11, 12 through 50. Now I'm going to ask you the same question. Which hand holds the most years? And you, see, you might say, well, preacher, you got me the first time. But you're not going to get me the second time. Uh, you know, it's probably not going to be the one with the most chapters, which will be 12 through 50. And you're right. The first section covers 2,100 of the twenty. 500 years of Genesis, or the patriarchy. So you have 2,100 years covered in Genesis 1 through 11. Only 400 years covered in Genesis 12 through 50. Now, that's all introduction. Here's our, here are our points for the, for the Bible class. This morning you want a map of where we're going. Uh, this is where we're going. And we're going to look at the patriarchal dispensation of the Bible class. So that's going to be the book of Genesis. And there are... There are three things to remember from the book of Genesis. There are four events, four people, and three prophecies. If you know four events, four people, three prophecies, then you know the highlights of the book of Genesis. Or to say it another way, the highlights of the first dispensation of Bible history, the patriarchal dispensation. Now maybe you have taken a stone before and skipped it across a lake. And you know when you skip, skip a stone, it jumps, a big jump, a big jump, medium, and then it gets smaller, and then it goes under. So the first jumps are big jumps. You have the same thing in the book of Genesis. You have big jumps in the first 11 chapters, because what God is doing in Genesis 1-11 through 11 is telling us the information that we need to know in order to know where we came from, while we're here, and where we're going. You see, you can't find that information out anywhere else. You can take all the books of philosophy that the philosophers have written, all the books of wisdom that have have been uh, assembled down through the years, but they, they cannot tell you where we came from because no one was there except God. And God wrote it down so we could know. Now, there, there are theories, there are false views, there are things that have led many uh, millions of people astray about where we came from. We're not up from the slime. We're down from the hand of God. We are made in the image of God. And God has a purpose for us. purpose is to glorify Him. It is to prepare to go to be with Him. 
And th that would be our purpose and our destiny. So our origin, purpose, and destiny all begin in the book of Genesis. In order to understand who we are and why we're here, we need to know these four events. So let's talk about them briefly. Four events. This is point number one. And I'll give you the map. There is the creation, fall, flood, tower. Creation, fall, flood, tower. Four simple words to remember. And in that order, the Bible covers them. Creation... That's Genesis 1 and 2. When God spake and where there had been nothing, there was something. Where there had been nothing, there was a universe. Where there was an empty earth, there became a field earth with vegetation and animals. And then on the, the second half of the last day of creation, day 6, God formed of the dust a man. A man's body. And He breathed into His nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. Genesis 2.7. That's how we got here. God breathed into dust and made it animated. God made us capable of procreation. And so all of us go back through that process to Adam and Eve. Eve is called the mother of all living because she gave birth to her children who gave birth to children and so forth. Everybody in the whole world goes back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. That's the creation. Of course, Eve was not made the same way Adam was. After God uh, gave what I believe is an exercise to help Adam understand the need for his wife, he's, he uh, named all the animals. And at some point, it must have dawned on him that everything that God made has a correspondent. I mean, the rooster has the hen, and the, the bull has the heifer, and the ram has the ewe, and and so forth, and he thought, well, I'm all by myself. And so God caused a deep sleep to come upon Adam. God performed the first surgery. God took from Adam a rib, and from that rib He made Eve, a correspondent, a suitable helper, to Adam. She's now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She's the crown of creation, dust, double refined. She's the last thing that God made. And the, and the very pinnacle of it. And so when Adam was presented with her, he had a bride. And he had someone he desired. He thought she was beautiful, no doubt. And then in that, that couple was placed in the Garden of Eden. So there you have the creation. What about the fall? I don't know how long it t passed between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Bible doesn't say probably not a long time, but here you have God giving them toward the end of chapter two one rule, only one rule: don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's verse sixteen. And you can eat of all; thou mayest freely eat of all the, the fruit of all the other trees. So there was variety, there was plenty. All needs were met. It was a garden paradise. And yet that one tree was there in the midst of the garden because God made man with volition or freedom to choose. And you, you cannot exercise volition if you don't have a choice. So God gave man and woman a choice. You can choose to obey me. I will bless you. Don't eat this, of, of this tree. But it was there and they had the opportunity to sin. They could exercise their will against God's will if they wanted to. You get to Genesis 3 and we find that there is another creature, a serpent, a Satan or the devil in the form of a serpent, a talking snake who comes 
to Eve, evidently, when she separated from Adam. He's not mentioned at all until the last part of verse 6 when she gives the fruit to him also. It seems that that is at a later time when after the conversations had taken place. Maybe the devil has chosen an opportune time to tempt Eve when she does not have support there. She doesn't have Adam to say, uh, remember, we're not supposed to eat of that tree, or, or, or no, we're not going to do this, or let's think about this. None of that. And uh, the devil comes. The devil's tactics are the same as they are in your life and my life, the same as they were when Jesus was tempted by the devil. Number one, he wants to create doubt. He questions. And you see that here in Genesis, the third chapter. Uh, Hast God said, thou... Hast God said, um, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Verse 1. So he's questioning to create doubt. And then he denies the word of God. God said, Thou shalt surely die. The devil said, Thou shalt not surely die. So he contradicts God. He denies God. He calls God a liar. And then he substitutes something else. Why don't you eat of this tree and it will make you wise. It will open your eyes. You will be as gods. This is better. So deny, so doubt, denial, substitution. The same thing the devil does with us. He wants us to doubt the Word of God. Is that really what it says? Is that really what it means? Do I really have to do that? Or do I really have to not do this? Doubt. Now, the culture around us is constantly doing what the devil did to Eve. It's not really wrong for two consenting adults to engage in sexual activity. I mean, you don't have to have that piece of paper that says you're married to do that, right? Well, the whole world, it seems, would buy into that philosophy. But that doesn't change what Scripture says, and has always said. 2 Timothy 2, 22 First uh, Corinthians six eighteen, a lot of verses, Hebrews thirteen four. Well, is it really is it really forbidden for a woman to preach to a mixed audience? I mean, these are modern times, right? That that doesn't really apply anymore, does it? You see, put a question mark where God put a period. Um, you can put your notes there. First Timothy two one through eight. A woman is not to use authority over the man but to be in silence. Those scriptures, 1 Corinthians 14 also, are, are still just as applicable today as they were when the ink was still wet on the paper when Paul had written it by the inspiration of God. And you can take any number of illustrations, that's just a couple, to show how the devil is still doing what he did to Eve and in substituting something better. Well, the church will grow more if we don't have all this emphasis on baptism. You know, if you just let people be who they are and don't try to put a lot of rules out there, the church will grow a lot Substitute something different. But what good is church growth if it's not blessed by God? What good is, what good is assembling if the Word of God is not going to instruct those who are assembled? 2 Timothy 4, 2, were to preach the Word, be instant in season, out season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. So there you have the devil's tactics. How did, the, how did Eve respond to that? Not well. She, did, she made three mistakes. Her first mistake was to omit from the Word of God. She added to the Word of God. She 
modify the Word of God. Let's see that in her response. She said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. She left out a word. It's a word of grace. It's a word of generosity. Thou mayest freely eat. She left out freely. That might be the best word in the whole whole statement. And then she added to the Word of God. The next verse says, the last part, ye shall, God has said, ye shall not eat of it. Well, He did say that. Neither shall you touch it. He didn't say that. Lest you die. She added to the Word of God. Perhaps it would have been a good idea not to touch it. That's not what God said. And it has the result of making God even more strict than He was. God said, don't eat it. He didn't say, no. So she's made rules where God didn't make a rule. And then she has substituted, uh, you see... She changed or modified the Word of God in the last phrase of verse 3, lest ye die. That's watered down what God actually said. It's not nearly as strong. For God said, thou shalt surely die. That's a very strong definitive statement. She said, lest ye die. That's not nearly so strong. So she made three mistakes. They all related to the Word of God. If she had had the respect for the Word of God that God intended for her to have, then she would have been able to answer the devil point for point and would have defeated him. And James 4, 7 says he would have fled from her as he did from Jesus, Matthew 4, 1, well, about verse 11 and Luke 4, 13, after Jesus answered him with the word of God three times, the devil left him. Not, not for good, he came back to tempt him more, but you know, for, that, for that occasion, the same would have happened here. But we see the, the fall of man in verse 6, the woman saw... That the tree was good for food. So you have uh, lust of the flesh, good for food. And it was pleasant to the eyes. So the lust of the eyes. And a tree to be desired to make one wise. There's the pride of life. 1 John 2.16 says that's the same. Those are the same three ways the devil tempts all of us. You can put any temptation that you face or I face into one of those three categories. Sometimes they will bleed over into more than one, but it's always at least one of them. Every temptation, a lust of the flesh, something results from, from our biology, from who we are, the way we're made, the lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes, we're drawn to things that we are attracted to by sight. Pride of life, well, this will make me appear better in the sight of others. This will make... This will exalt me. Well, those are the same three temptations he used with Jesus in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. So she saw that. Good for food, plus the eyes desire to make one wise. She took the fruit thereof. She touched it. And did eat. She violated the law of God and gave also to her husband. It's the first time he's been mentioned. Husband also with her. uh, Gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. Now, when you compare 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 13, which discusses this, it seems that Eve was beguiled, Eve was tricked, Eve was lied to, fell for the devil's lies. 1 Corinthians 11, 3 says that she was beguiled. Same, I think the same verb is used in 1 Timothy 2. It doesn't say that about Adam, though. So some have taken from that that Adam sinned with his eyes open. In other words, well, E and my wife, she's done this, and well, I'm going to be separated from her if I don't. If I don't eat it, maybe that's the thinking. So there they have plunged humanity over the falls of sin. 
So what, what we see so far in the book of Genesis is how did we get here by God? Now we, we see how did the world get in such a mess by sin? Creation, fall, flood, tower, those are the four major events. Flood is, from, is recorded in Genesis 6 through 9 where every imagination of man's heart became only evil continually. That's after the sons of God married the daughters of men. Those are the descendants of Seth who married the descendants of Cain. The descendants of Seth respected God. The descendants of Cain did not. They married because they were attracted to them. And instead of being brought up to the level of the sons of God, the sons of God are brought down to the level of the daughters of men. Their imaginations, their thoughts, the world became, became evil and their thought, their, uh, the world became violent in those days. So, God said, my spirit shall not always strive with man. God is patient. God is loving. God is compassionate. But God also is just. And God cannot overlook sin forever without impugning on His character. And so God said, yet 120 years, my spirit shall not always strive with man. So man had a shelf life. Impenitent man had a shelf life of 120 years. And during that time, Noah was a preacher of righteousness, 2 Peter 2.5. So he's building an ark, and he's preaching. I suppose his sons helped him build the ark. I don't know if they helped him preach. I suppose there was no rule against hiring other people to help build that tremendous ark under Noah's guidance, and according to the stipulations God had given as to how big and how many rooms and windows and doors and so forth would be in it. But he had 120 years to build it anyway. Either way, he constructed it within that time frame. And finally, he was, uh, after he had been unsuccessful as a preacher, pretty successful as a builder, but unsuccessful as a preacher, nobody believed him except his three sons and their three daughters, his daughters in law. So there are eight people to get on the, on the ark those six plus Adam, plus Noah, and Mrs. Noah. So eight people get in the ark, and God closes the door. Noah didn't close the door. God closed it. And God said, come into the ark. What does that indicate? He was inside the ark. He didn't say go in the ark. That means he was on the outside. He said, come into the ark. And so Noah and his family do. God closes them in. And a week later, it starts to rain. Some say it had never rained before. That God had watered the vegetation with the, the uh, springs or the mist. It's mentioned in Genesis 2. I don't know if that's the case or not, but I do know that it never rained like this before. For the fountains of the great deep were broken up. The clouds poured out. Perhaps there was a water vapor canopy that was larger than what our water cycle has now. Some believe that. It makes sense that it could have been part of where the water came from that now fills our oceans. But at any rate, it flooded the entire earth. Not just a local flood, but the entire earth over the tallest mountain. And only those inside the ark of all the land-dwelling, air-breathing animals and man, only those on the ark lived. Everyone else drowned. What does that tell you about God? It tells you that God's loving. It tells you that God's patient. But it tells you that God eventually will punish. If His warnings are ignored, there is no other remedy. And the consequences are very dire. Because... Once that ark was shut, do you suppose anybody knocked on the door? 
when the rain got up to the knees or the water got up to their knees or their waist? <laughs> I suppose they did. But Noah didn't close the door and Noah couldn't open it. That was God's door. And no one else got on that boat once the, door, the time of opportunity had passed. Now we live in a similar situation because 1 Peter 3 compares our generation or our uh, dispensation with that and says that we, in like manner, we're saved by water. What does he mean? Baptism. Noah and his family were lifted out of that destruction, saved by water in that sense. So we are saved by water in the sense that we are immersed in water for the forgiveness of our sins in submission to the will of God. 1 Peter 3.21, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. But what if we decide not to do that? I don't see any reason to be baptized. I don't think that's important. We have volition. We can say no to God. But then we also say no to the blessings of God, the salvation that God offers. And ultimately, we're, we are right now, in, in a sense, living in the 120-year window. Now, it's been longer than that, but, but the window, during which time God has patience. God extends His preaching and His invitation to come into the ark of safety. But eventually, that, that day will come when the, He closes the door. You know, Matthew 25.10 uses that phrase, and the door was shut, speaking about the, the virgins that had to go and buy and come back, and when they came back, they couldn't get in. Well, that's a picture of the second coming of Jesus. Some will not be prepared when He comes back. And once that door of opportunity is closed, then there's no opening it. So that's why it's so urgent. It's not just a tradition that we go through on Sundays and gospel meetings. You know, it's not just a good idea. Or, you know, this is serious business. Preaching the gospel is serious. Because we're giving people an opportunity. What if this were the last Sunday before the door closes? Could be. It might not be. But if it is... How many people would run down these aisles if they knew that for a certainty? Probably a lot. But one day it will be the last one. And even if that doesn't happen in our lifetime, then door is also closed when we die. Door is closed when, uh, if we are rendered mentally incapable of repentance, such as with Alzheimer's or in, a, in an accident that takes our ability to make decisions. And also if our conscience becomes so hard that the gospel doesn't reach it which can't happen, Ephesians 4.19. So if the door closes in any of those ways, then my destiny has ultimately been sealed. All right, now we move to the fourth, and I won't spend much time here, which is the tower. How did, where did all the languages come from? Uh, you know, Spanish, Chinese, Port, Port, Portuguese, English, Swahili. I mean, there's a lot of languages on the earth. Where did all those come from? Well, in Genesis 11, there's a record of the, those who decided they would make a tower unto heaven. Probably doesn't have to do with its height so much as its purpose. It was unto heaven in the sense that they were using it as a place to worship heaven. The stars, the moon, and so forth. Well, God was not pleased with that. The Bible says He came down and He confused their languages. So they couldn't understand each other. You can't have a building project if you can't understand the others are working the building project. And so they all soon divided into groups that they could understand and communicate with, and then they migrated into different areas. And you can do a study on that of uh, the different language groups in different parts of the world 
and even the different line, uh, genealogies that go back to Ham, Shem, and Japheth that got off that boat in Genesis 9. And you could trace your genealogy in all likelihood back through one of those uh, three sons of Noah. So we all go back to Adam and Eve in the ultimate sense, but we also, it also bottlenecked again at Noah's family, and we all are from one of those three sons. All right, so we have four events. Now let's talk about, and I won't spend much time here, and we don't have much time, but let's talk about the four people. So four events, chapters 1 through 11, creation, fall, flood, tower. And, you know, that's easy to remember. Just, just say I'm going to remember that and remember it. It's not hard to remember. Creation, fall, flood, tower. That's 1 through 11. Chapters 12 through 50, four people. Easy to remember. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So once you try to remember that, you got it in your head. Now, what we're going to see here is the reason the time slowed down so much is because you're talking about four consecutive lifespans. Even though they lived a long time, 175, 180, 147, 110 years. But they overlapped, of course. So it's a father, son, grandson, great-grandson. So you have these four... And the reason it narrows is because in the first 11 chapters he's talking about human history, skipping rocks across the pond of time. In in the second half of the book he's talking about Hebrew history. You see, God made a special promise to that father that's going to be fulfilled through through his lineage. And so God now has changed his focus from what we needed to know about humanity in the early days to what we needed to know about salvation and where did it begin and how did God... Uh, gradually reveal that, his plan to man. That's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Um, I think I'll just just mention um, the three prophecies to give you uh, a head start on what we're going to do in the next hour, in our worship hour. We're going to talk about Genesis 3.15. If you're taking notes, you can jot these down. So Genesis 3.15, the seed of woman promise. And then you have Genesis 12.1-3, Abraham's seed promise. And then Genesis 49.10, the promise of Shiloh. And I will go ahead and say this in case I forget to say this later. Of course, there's 300 plus prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament. Um, You have in the the Mosaic dispensation so many prophecies, minute details, where he'd be born, his character, events that would happen in his life, uh, birth, miracles, compassion, resurrection. I mean, you have just, just almost an autobiography or a biography of Jesus written before he ever lived. But the book of Genesis, the patriarchal, it's more like this. Uh, You have three dispensations. They have been called the the, uh, starlight dispensation, the moonlight dispensation, the sunlight dispensation. The reason is because, you know, if, if, if you only have starlight, you don't have much revelation, much illumination. You can't see well. So in the book of Genesis, it's like that. Well... Well, what do these things mean? It's early in history. You come to the moonlight dispensation. Let's say you tried to walk outside in, in the night and the moon is out. Well, that's, that's much broader than no moon. 
But it's not really bright enough to be able to read by, is it? It's not as bright as it will be whenever the sun comes up. And then you've got sun, that's full revelation. So we live in the sunlight dispensation when we have all the revelation that God's ever going to give in our possession. That's the whole Bible. Take away the New Testament and you go back a dispensation and you, they lived in the moonlight dispensation. They had Moses' writings. They had the writings of the prophets. But they could not understand all of them without the New Testament to explain. You know, even the angels couldn't. First Peter 1, 12-15 says the angels desire to look into. You picture them looking down as these events were unfolding and they were curious about exactly what God was doing. And eventually they got to see because they lived through the New Testament and they saw what Jesus did. So you have those. That's a little bit of an introduction to the, the next lesson, which will be the prophecies from the time of Genesis. We will be dismissed then until I guess it's time.